no, 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 Everybody, Norm from Norm's Rare Guitars. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm so honored today to have the great Dweezil Zappa, one of the great guitar players, and from a rock and roll family with Frank Zappa, his dad, and my buddy James Santiago uh, from Universal Audio. Great guy, great guitar player. These guys go back together. I hope you dig it. Check out the show. gonna go all crazy the norms rare guitars podcast i want to welcome you guys um thank you for listening in and uh and watching later on at the all guitar network um so uh i'm here with my buddy james santiago the great james santiago sound designer for universal audio the greatest uh audio company that does recording gear and all that how kind much of stuff. is that going to cost me when we don't see uh, i will talk about that later <laughs> and my old buddy dweezil zappa Hello, Norm. And thank you, buddy, for coming in. Sure. I can't thank you guys enough. Love you guys. I mean, and, you know, James is going to, from time to time, kind of be my sidekick on some of these uh, podcasts that we're going to do. And Tim Pierce is going to do some. Sweet. And uh, yeah. it's going to be really cool. And, uh, you know, before we get into all the guitar geek stuff, I want to talk about something because I think Dweezil and I have shared some type of a life experience. And... Uh, I uh, figure I'll bring this up. I don't know how many people have brought this up to you, but uh, my folks named me Norman. And what the hell were they thinking? I mean, you know, it's like I'm going either I've got to be a real fast runner so that I don't get beat up on a regular basis or I got to do something kind of special just, you know, to keep people away from me. What about you, Dweezil? Well, you know, I've been asked a few times. My dad was asked a few times because obviously my name is a little bit unusual. But these days people name their kids all kinds of things. So it's probably not as unusual as it, it once was. But... When my dad was asked about it, often, uh, you know, he had a response that I thought was pretty funny. He said, well, consider the beauty of a name like Ralph. You know? <laughs> there you go. So he yeah. said, at least, you know, why not do something different? And uh, But, you know, I mean, as a kid growing up with the name Dweezil, it was obviously a little bit of a strange thing because every so often you'd think, you know, I would think to myself, wait a minute. I do have a weird name. You know, like back when you had to make collect calls and you'd have to talk yeah. to an operator. You're like, oh. <laughs> I bet the operators are getting a kick out of yeah. that. Yeah, that, that didn't always work out, you know. So, uh, but I got used to it. And uh, I did have an experience of my own, though, that, that made it fine for me with my own name. Because uh, you know how some kids decide to be a bit of a bully in certain situations. You yeah. know, I, I was in a, a shoe store when I was about five or six there was a kid who was a little bigger than me, and he he was over by the the K Swiss shoes. You remember uh -huh. those, of course. And he he says to me, "What's your name?" I said, uh -oh. "Dweezil." He goes, "That's a stupid name." 
and said, what's your name? He said, Buns. <laughs> buns. Oh, Buns? Oh, yeah. all right. There you yeah. go. So I, I thought my name was far superior to Buns. <laughs> and what was, uh, you know, uh, there was something that I heard about that when they, when your mom was about to give birth and you were going in the, ho- going in the hospital, there was another name, Motorhead? What no, well, it? see, Wikipedia likes to make up all kinds of uh, stories that, that – uh, that then you end up having a call that comes in right at the same time, you know, Always. because yeah. Wikipedia is on the case. They're like, yeah. wait a minute, you can't say that we make up stories. Yeah. Wish I but did. yeah, so, <laughs> but totally what, professional here at the Norm's yeah, Guitars yeah. podcast. So, so what, what, uh, you know, if you try to do research, you might find all kinds of things that are not exactly correct. But the, the real story is that uh, when my dad, filled out the paperwork saying what my name was. The, the, the nurses at the office, uh, you know, in the office at the hospital said, well, you know, you can't name a child that and we're not going to let you see your child until you put some normal names, uh, you know, on there. So it said my first name, Dweezel, and then it said Ian Donald Calvin Euclid because those were people that were in my dad's band at the time. Oh, there you Underwood. go. Uh, uh, so uh, anyway, the... Those names, when I found out those middle names, Ian Donald Calvin Euclid, when I was, again, around five or six, uh, I said, I don't like those. Let's get rid of them. That'll get you beat up as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. And, the, you know, the one, the funniest thing was that I was fine with most of them, except, like, the one that sounded worst to me at the time was Ian. Like, Euclid right. was like, okay, that was okay. But I don't know why, you know. So now, of course, I, I, I've had them stricken, uh, and it's just Dweezil Zappa. Well, I'm trying to get Norm stricken, but I think it's a little late in the game. So let me ask you, James and Dweezil, how did you two characters get together? Because I know you guys are old buddies, and I know you're both great guitar players. So, Well, uh, it's an official story and an unofficial story, but like my wife, I'll say, what's your version of the story? What do you remember? All right, so so I started a band where I was going to be playing my dad's music, and I needed to find – uh, a bunch of different instrumental players that could uh, do different things. And, and so one of the people that auditioned, um, in fact, one of the very first people that auditioned for the band was a great musician named Sheila Gonzalez. And Sheila, uh, she came in and did this audition where she didn't realize that she didn't have to do what she did during the audition. And so basically she was supposed to come in and play keyboards, saxophone, and also uh, flute. And this one song called Peaches on Regalia has all of those in one song. Uh, wow. But she could have just played each section separately, but she came in and it was almost like a vaudeville show where she played just enough to be able to switch fast enough from keyboards to flute to saxophone. And she played the whole song just with a drummer. Uh, and so she was the person that uh, I was like, oh, of course, I have to hire her. She's amazing. And uh, she's been in the band ever since 2006. But at a certain point, she started hanging out with Mr. James Santiago. Well, I know accounting for yeah, taste, but no, I'll tell you I that. Know. No, no, that, that, that's exactly uh, a good way to explain it. Is, uh, yes, I, and I had actually seen the band in the first incarnation because uh, another friend of mine, Jamie Kime, uh, was also playing in the band at the time. And he's like, man, you should come to a rehearsal. So I had actually snuck in and out of a rehearsal, I think at Third Encore. And this in is where I still, excuse me, had a, a yeah. fiance. Was a, another, <laughs> uh, but no this, was, no, this was all on the up and up. I'm like, sure, I'll swing by uh, 3E on the way home. So I had poked in, and I think I'd seen the band when Steve was in it and some other stuff, and poked in. Steve I'm just trying guy. to yeah, translate yeah. for these guys. Yeah. Right, sorry, but uh, no, it's it, and, uh, so it was that band very early. Might have been 2005 or six, whenever you guys were still over. Before yeah, we, you guys had done any shows yet, right? Yeah, well, we started touring in 2006, so it could have been late 2005 when we were doing rehearsals. Right, so I think I think it was that, and I literally had just popped in, said hi to Jamie for a second, I kind of snuck back out, and then I think I saw the Wilton show. Maybe the first time you guys were here in the, in the balcony, saw the band, said, hi, Jamie, again, bailed out the back, saw the gig. And then at some point, and, and I was like, well, that sax player is super cute. <laughs> and then uh, that's literally, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. But then, yeah, so being able to just uh, see her. And so now I actually get to get two things out of the way so I can go see my wife out on the road and then usually find some guitar time because uh, 
you, it's uh, usually just uh, giving you props. For this. You, you're usually pretty up on like new techniques and new players, so it's always fun to, you know, post show just kind of sit there and have you seen this guy? You seen this guy? It's a uh, that's the cool. the the crazy thing about this day and age is uh, Instagram has become sort of like the new version of radio or television, and it's the place yeah. where you can tune into your specific favorite channel of of guitar style. Yeah. So there's a, there's a bunch of players out there, and you know we're always discovering people, and and you know it's amazing what what kids get up to these days. You know it's, it's the same as as the Olympics. You know that when they set the bar high, and then they shatter these records in in the decathlon or whatever, and you think, oh, that's no. never going to be possible. There's yeah. no way somebody's going to run a two minute mile. Oh, yeah. You know, but then suddenly somebody does something crazy. And uh, so that's that's the thing with uh, with guitar players these days. There's there's some people out there that are doing oh, crazy stuff, ridiculous. I, and I will give, also give them some props too, because when I started, my wife uh, is a sax player, is a jazz trained, you know, per, actual classically trained musician. And I'd walk around and I might play a Van Halen tune or something. She's like, "What's that?" And I'm just like, "Oh, oh no! How do you not know this?" And then at some point, she started catching on to more. Stuff I'm like, oh, you've been listening to stuff that Dweezil's playing, right? She actually started picking up Van Halen classics and more guitar stuff from hanging on Dweezil 24-7 on the road. So uh, he's been training her right. <laughs> there Sorry. you go. You know, speaking of Van Halen, did Van Halen produce a record from you, for you when you were 12 years the old? The very first recording I ever made was, uh, there was two songs. One was called My Mother is a Space Cadet, and the other song was called Crunchy Water. And uh, we, I was 12 years old, and I had a group uh, with uh, some school friends, and uh, one of them um, has also gone on to be like a big deal in, in the uh, music business, a guy named Greg Kirsten, who uh, has uh -huh. worked with Adele and a bunch of other people, and he's, uh, he's a great um, keyboardist and, and producer. But anyway, we were playing these songs in the basement, and um, and... Somehow or another, we there was a phone call that came to the house, and and it turned out to be Edward Van Halen, and he came over to the house, and he met with my dad, and and uh, and I got to meet him, and we played guitar, and Steve Vai came over because Steve was in my dad's band at the time, mm -hmm. and so there was that meeting, uh, but then a few months later, somehow or another, and I don't remember the details of how this occurred, but. It ended up that Edward Van Halen produced these two songs that my little garage band was playing. Uh, and it was at the studio that was just built at, at our family home. My dad had just put this studio together. Uh, this is like early 1981, I think, is when the record or when yeah. the studio was was finished. And then we recorded in there. In fact, the first thing that got recorded in that studio was a missing persons record. Really? And, yeah. And so... Uh, but we did these two songs. It was uh, Edward Van Halen and Don Landy who did uh, the original engineering on the first couple Van Halen records, yeah. and uh, so that was uh, that was a crazy thing for a bunch of twelve year olds. And, and Edward was uh, not sure how to to deal with all the kids. You know, he was I don't know, are we supposed to take a milk and cookie break? Or, <laughs> you know, uh, so that was that was a fun uh, experience. So we did have a different drummer than my original uh, drummer that was in my garage band at the time. Um, it ended up being Warren Cucurulo's brother uh, uh -huh. who played just on that uh, recording. Well, you must have been the most popular kid in your school having Van Halen produce your record. Well, it, it was a weird kind of situation because it's nothing like today where, you know, you could go on Instagram or YouTube and, and see this kind of stuff happen, you know, uh, like at any hour of the day, any day of, of the week. But back then, you know, it was it was quite astonishing to be anywhere close by to, you know, such a, a well-known musician who was so influential at yeah. the time too. I mean, obviously my dad was as well, but to the generation, um, you know, the kids and, and school and stuff like that, Van Halen was more well known. So it was, it was definitely an interesting time. Well, having a rock star dad like that, that must have been an interesting. I remember when I first came to LA, you know, we'd drive through Laurel Canyon, people, oh, that's uh, Frank Zappa's house over there, you know, and, you know, that was kind of like a tourist 
site, you know. Well, the the, the log cabin is is the one that people uh, refer to, and that was he lived there. Uh, he rented that place for a little while uh, in like 1967, something like uh-huh. that, and then uh, moved uh, still in the Hollywood Hills area. Um, uh, and I guess within the last uh, year and a half, two years, uh, the house that I grew up in was bought by uh, Lady Gaga. So it's, really? uh, you know, it's got the, the home studio in there that my dad built and everything. So, uh, but that log cabin house was originally um, built by a, a film star that was like fam- famous for um, uh, Westerns and stuff. And it had a bowling alley really? and weird wow. stuff in it. Uh and then, like, the Manson family kind of snuck around in the back mm-hmm. hill uh, back there. So that was why he left. My dad left. He's like, I can't be dealing with, you know, uh, these yeah. kind of people. Uh, could be you know? no Dweezil. Yeah. You know, so uh, yeah. Dweezil could have been doing time yeah, or yeah. something. I don't know. Yeah. Quite an education for a young man. So, and how do you guys, I mean, with the Universal Audio thing, is that a part of the connection with you guys? Because I know you have studio and all that. Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, uh, we definitely bond over the studio gear and the guitar stuff and, and everything uh, and, um, and Universal Audio and Bill Putnam over there. You know, we all are, are friendly, but uh, it's really James and I started spending time mostly when he would visit on the road. He was visiting uh, Sheila and then uh, I would just invite him to play with us for however many days that he was out visiting. So he... Cool. He just became a de facto, you know, uh, member of the band, yeah, yeah. And, and played on a few different songs, and uh, and he's played on some recordings that I've done, and um, and so he's he's definitely, for those of you who don't know, he's one of the best guitar players in the world, and I'll second that no. as well. Well, and, and let me let me clarify. And he's definitely well, one of the best guitar yeah. players in this room. Too, you know? <laughs> no, considering where we are, knowing that Steve's like lives like ten minutes away, I'm gonna just I'm gonna opt out of that. <laughs> and a number of great, and Dweezil's, you know, fantastic player can play anything, and I will clarify that. I can usually only maintain two or three or four of the of the songs that you guys play at any one time, because they're very complicated songs. If you, and if you know the material, there are certain pieces of those songs that if you miss one note. It's like falling off a horse. You just you don't get back on in the middle of that song, and it can be a little intimidating. And it's even worse when he's like, "No, it sounds fine." And I get the I look at my wife and she's like, "You sure you want to play that tonight?" <laughs> like, and it's, it's happened a number of times. He's probably kind of glanced at that. It almost happened. Like you're not playing that right. I'm like, oh, I'm like okay. It's because it's she she's the stickler. She's very precise and knowing all the stuff and she's had what 13 years i think of playing this material and yeah can pretty much sight read it you know she's she's pretty bulletproof when it comes yeah. to parts and everything uh and that that is very very high praise considering like what we're talking about the, the material is very difficult yeah. so you know it's like being ready to to do your best in the olympics again as a, an example like every moment on yeah. on stage you know like you you have one chance to do yeah. it right, one. and her, uh, yeah, she's she's very um, she's very accurate with the stuff that she does, and and very rarely has any kind of um, you know thing happen where something goes off. And and sometimes I will actually try, <laughs> like when she has a difficult speech or something that she'll have to do, because sometimes there's sort of comedic elements that happen in in some of the dialogue that might exist in songs. Uh, and sometimes I'll try to throw her off in that just, uh, just to see if I can get her to, to slip up and, and she's just nope. rock solid. She goes with it. Yeah. Well, you know, if you screw up, all you got to do is just go, it's jazz. It's well, jazz, man. There are no wrong notes in jazz. You just, any messed up note, true. that's, those are the good notes but to a jazz to, guy. But these, these audiences know every single note of these records and every version of every note. Yeah. I mean, the amount of pressure to play a three hour show. You make one mistake and be like, yeah, but they missed that one version from Helsinki where they probably should have played this. Like, oh, man, seriously. Yeah, they, there's, they there are a few people out there like that that are. There are uh, a lot of geeks out there, you know, and the I, I deal with them all. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's called the rest of the development. I mean, yeah. you know, all yeah. these people, you know, they never grew up and they just, you know, they live for this. Well, you know, I mean, there's, it's a certain kind of audience that uh, that really appreciates it. And, and part of what we do with the music is to present it to an audience that didn't get a chance to see it live. So, 
some of those people may not be as familiar, but you know, it's, it's creating that mix so that future generations are familiar with it and, and can appreciate it because seeing this kind of stuff played live makes a big difference as opposed to just listening to it. You know, we actually yep. see what happens and see how people have to relate to each other and see that uh, this stuff can even be played. It's, yeah. it, it really is a well, I remember cool thing. your dad's music was pretty complicated too. He was, uh, yeah. was he, um, did he, was he schooled? I'm sure he must have been. He know? went to the library and taught himself everything about being a composer uh, at, really? at 11 years old. That's, you know, wow. he just said, I'm going to be a composer. And he went there and he learned all this stuff. And he, he discovered all these modern composers like Varese and Stravinsky and at the time, this would have been, you know, in the, the middle 50s or early 50s or, yeah, probably middle 50s. Uh, that stuff was still so advanced and ahead of its time. Uh, the, yep. You know, uh, things where you had an air raid siren as an instrument. And <laughs> so that people didn't appreciate that at the time. But my dad... Being a kid, he would see like a, a picture of Edgar Varese, uh, whose hair looked like the, the 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 front cover of the Eraserhead movie, and he said, "Who who let a mad scientist make a record?" You know, so he'd put this on, and at home, his parents would say, "Turn that off," which is what people did to like rock and roll music. But sure. this was classical yeah. music. They're like, "Turn that off." So he really liked all that kind of uh, avant-garde stuff, where you could hear dissonance and you could hear all these different uh, rhythms and things that were not uh, the, the average stuff from the so-called composers who wore the wigs, you know, like Mozart yeah. and Beethoven and whatnot. So these, uh, these sounds were interesting to him and, and he developed all that stuff and his music became more and more and more complicated as time went on. And, you know, to learn stuff from throughout his whole career that is, it's mind blowing in terms of the effort that it takes to to learn it, memorize it, and keep it up to speed. You know, so like what James was saying, he's learned a few songs, but uh, he's learned maybe three or four, where we've had to learn like four hundred or something. And so keeping these things up uh, and and playable is 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 very difficult. Very cool. Well, listen, we're going to take a real short break. And uh, but while we're doing that, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk uh, to Dweezil about being an actor. Dweezil, oh, you're an actor as well, so right? Exciting! It's going to yeah, be amazing. Uh, James, you act right. Uh, I, it was a long time ago. We live in the valley. I don't want to talk about it. Oh, there you <laughs> go. These guitars are not free. You know, I, I, we can talk about. Well, this too. all right. Well, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about some other stuff, and then we're going to get geeky with guitars and all that kind of stuff. So please stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Norm's Yard Guitars podcast. We love you guys. Dweezil Zappa, James Santiago, right here. So we're back at the Norm's Yard Guitars uh, podcast, and uh, got my buddy Dweezil Zappa and James Santiago. And a lot of you people, uh, if you're old enough, you're going to remember Pretty in Pink. And you were in Pretty in Pink. Oh, Man, that's yes. a cult movie. Yes. Well, it's one of those John Hughes films. Uh, Molly Ringwald was the star of, of the film. And at the time of the, the making of the film, I was dating Molly Ringwald. So you will see in the record store that she works in uh, in the film, uh, the the... The, there's a record on the wall that's the featured record of the week in the store. Uh, and it's the My Mother is a Space Cadet single, the Dweezil <laughs> single. It's one way to promote yeah, yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I also had a very uh, brief uh, little appearance in the film where I was uh, a friend of hers. We were in a club and uh, watching some, I think it's like a reggae style band that's playing at the time. And somebody asked me the question, uh, what was my name in the film? I think it was, uh, uh, we, I think it, you have it in the notes here. I have to remember myself. It's somewhere. Bobby? No. no, it wasn't Bobby. Uh, it was somewhere. Uh, I'm looking for it. I can't find it. Anyway, whatever my name was in, in the film, it was so long ago. Somebody says to me, you know, what would you do if your dad came home a rich man? And my big line in the film, after being uh, taken, my interest taken away from the reggae band, is I turn to them and say, kiss his ass. There it was great. Go. It was great. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, that's good thinking. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you were a, D a VJ yeah. for MTV. 
I was on MTV when uh, it was relatively new, and I was 17 years old, and I was doing some stuff on there where I was uh, basically announcing uh, videos. Uh, and then sometimes there would be some things where we would film things in the street or there'd be events. But uh, I really was only doing a little bit of that stuff. I did about 12 weeks over a period of two years, but people thought I was on there more than, than I, um, than I actually was. And one of the things that started taking place was, um, at the time when something was in heavy rotation, it might play like four or five or six times an hour. And so wow. when, when you had to do something, uh, you'd have to back announce it. So you would be uh, if, if you had just seen the video, it would then come to the VJ on the screen and, and it would say, you just watched Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling, you know? Yeah. And so after having to do that over and over, uh, some of these videos, I wasn't a fan of, and I just couldn't help but have to say some kind of comment. I heard uh, you went on Howard Stern and that well, kind of ended that career. Right? Well, it wasn't like a big deal for me uh, because uh, I, I I was having some, uh, like, so for example, there were also things where uh, the the sponsors would have slogans. There was 7-Up had, feels so good coming down. You know, so I'm supposed to say, this is brought to you by 7-Up, feels so good coming down. And then Sounds I, like a drug thing. Yeah, and then, I, and then I would say, from what? You know, yeah, and right, I'd, I'd look at the go. camera like yeah. with a weird look. And then uh, they would start to tell me, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, well, I can't not do that because it just that's just that's how me. I feel about it, you know. Yeah. And so at a certain point, it was just something that they didn't appreciate anymore. So I just didn't uh, – I wasn't working there anymore. But uh, – it was sort of the precursor to Beavis and Butthead and making comments about videos and things, you know, because at a certain point that started to happen. And where, you did some of that too, right? Weren't you uh, the voice of? Uh, I I wasn't on I wasn't uh, on Beavis and Butthead, but I was on a, a show called Ajax. I mean, um, uh, it was Duckman, and I was uh, a character called Ajax. Uh, but uh, that was uh, a few years after the whole. MTV stuff and uh, <clears throat> but there was one time on MTV where I did have my dad visit and I got to interview him on camera uh -huh. and that was pretty funny because there was a video that got played and at the time it was uh, some it had to have a warning before the video because it had some footage in it that apparently was you know provocative uh, inappropriate it, well it, it it had uh, at the end of the video somebody is uh, there uh, they get hung at the gallows, you know? And, uh -huh. and so my dad says, kids, do not try this at home unless you're a Republican. Oh, then God. try it every day. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so that was pretty good. Uh, it was interesting to, to see that get on, on the air. And he talked a lot about Pat Robertson at the time and the whole 800-foot Jesus thing that was going on with, you know, uh, the evangelists. Uh, and he... He had a good time talking about that stuff. Uh, but I also got to interview Les Paul on there, which was a really cool That's thing. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, the good news, you know, like on this podcast, is you can say whatever the fuck you want. So, Perfect. I mean, you know, so uh, I don't really care. I, I frown on bad words, but what the fuck? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's holding a Les Paul. And it's actually kind of based on some stuff your dad did, so maybe that's a yeah, cool yeah. And you had a guitar, or he had a guitar that was stolen that this is based on, right? Yeah. So. There's an album called Hot Rats, which is one of my dad's most popular records. Uh, and interestingly about that album, it's mostly instrumental, um, but it has it has a couple of songs on it that are perhaps his most well-known, like Peaches on Regalia. Mm -hmm. um, and Willie the Pimp is a, a well-known song from that. But uh, on, on that record, he played a guitar that looked very much like this guitar. The, the guitar that he actually played was stolen uh, in about 1970 or 71, something like that. The record was made in 69, but the guitar originally started as a, just a regular gold top with cream-colored P90s. What? Didn't have a, a Bigsby or anything like that. But then, as you can see, he transformed it into something that nobody else would probably ever do to a Les Paul, he put a Other Telecaster. Other than Ted Green. Ted Other Green. Than yeah. Yeah. Like one other, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he put a Telecaster pickup here uh, next to the bridge. Uh, there's a Bigsby that's way down at the bottom. Uh, and then there's, you can knock things in and out of phase. 
I added some stuff that the guitar didn't have because I have other things that I need to be able to do with this guitar. So it has a, a piezo bridge system that I can blend in. Um, but essentially, I have control over these pickups, and I can knock them out of phase and create all kinds of um, cool. very different kind of stringy and and uh, mid-rangey sounds that um, help recreate the sound of, of that record. And so you can do everything from playing, like, classical music to make, like, uh, farm animal sounds? Well, I thing, could or? probably make a couple farm animal sounds with it. But ultimately, this guitar... Um, I, I really wanted to put it together for this tour that I'm doing, which starts in September, which is uh, we're going to play the entire Hot Rats album from top to bottom. Very cool. Which uh, I'm going to be playing a lot of stuff uh, exactly note for note. Uh, and it just helps to have a guitar that makes very much the same sound that my dad used at that time in order cool. to... Because one of the layers of detail that we go into when we do this stuff is we we look at it like it's layers of DNA material. We, If we know that, for example, a song was recorded on an API console, we have technology that we use uh, with our front of house mixing equipment where we can route digitally. We can use the, the digital version of an API console and we can use everything that we know of information-wise to recreate the signal path for each song. So if we know Article. that a different one was done on a Neve console and when, and we know it had a DBX 160 compressor or whatever, we can create all of that signal path and then use similar instruments and all these things. So it's all the way down to that layer of detail that we try to recreate the, the music. That's some pretty geeky stuff. And I would assume maybe, James, are you involved in any of this geekiness or what? You know, I, I, get, to, I get to see it as, it as it moves along through sometimes the rehearsals and, uh, you know, sound checks. It's a, and Dweezil can tell you, back to the, it's, it's a constant struggle. And I see it because he'll, he'll do a show, then I'll see him. He'll be on the bus listening to the show that just happened. So as because that's one of those things you have to constantly refine that kind of stuff. It's, again, three hours of music, how many songs plus making sure the mixes get better as the tour progresses. So it's actually quite a bit of work to maintain that level of detail. There are a lot of segues in between tunes. Yeah, that's the thing about my dad's live concerts is that rarely do songs just end and uh, there's time wasted on stage. He gave the audience the maximum amount of music that they could tolerate, (laughs) you know, and uh, so that's the way we do the shows as well. I mean, a show is a, a typical show for us is two hours, 15 minutes, but it can be longer depending on the material. And we've had shows that are three hours uh, just because, you know, some material is, is longer than, than others. And uh, so uh, the segues, though, are, are pretty extravagant. So you might have periods in a show where you'll be playing from song to song to song. They all segue together and, you know, you don't have a break for like 30, yeah. maybe 40 minutes. Wow. You know, and then if I have to change guitars or something, there'll be a break. But even then we might have like a little vamp going on underneath. So it might sound like, uh, you know, the theme from Price is Right or something. You know, <laughs> well, while I go get a new guitar. Well, you know, like talking about taking things to extreme, what was this thing? What the hell was I thinking? What were you doing on that? What the hell were you thinking? Well, I haven't finished it yet. So the idea started way back when. It's basically an instrumental record that has, uh, it, it, it changes musical styles and the atmosphere, the recording atmosphere changes from moment to moment. So if you were trying to dial in music on an old radio, it's kind of like that basically because you hear little bits of things that catch your ear and then you tune into something else. And this this piece of music is segued like that, where it just it morphs from one thing into another. But as it's happening, all the styles change, and you will hear different guitar players actually make guest appearances. So there's about 45 different guitar players on there. Uh, like who? Like, like uh, uh, Angus and Malcolm Young, uh, who I, I don't believe have played on anything other than ACDC. Uh, yeah. And then Brian May... Eric Johnson, uh, Steve Vai, Steve Morse, Albert Lee, yeah. Brian Setzer, Edward Van Halen, 
Uh, Which Andy never plays on anybody's stuff, right? Yeah. And that's like the big thing is he doesn't play on anybody's stuff. Are you going to try to get yeah. some well-known guitar players? To I should. Yeah. I should see. I should see <laughs> if there's like a couple I could get. You know, um, maybe you could help me. Uh, All right. You know, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, so. There's a few more people that I'd like to uh, to have on there um, before I wrap this thing up. But I started it, I think, around 1990. Uh, and so, it's, so do you have like a, a finished date or, is this uh, like, you know, uh, I haven't really worked, ready? I haven't worked on it every year since then because, uh, I, I got busy with this whole tour that I've been doing and, you know, I started in 2006, uh, playing a lot of my dad's music and everything. So, uh, honestly, uh, I've been starting to think about, uh, you know, maybe I'll have some time next year to, to take a little bit of time to, to wrap it up and, and put it all together, but it's good that um, technology has has changed uh, and I'll be able to do some other things that because I originally was wanting to be able to uh, mix it in surround sound and deliver it that way. So that's something that I still plan to do because it's um, there's so many textures and it's it's all essentially just guitar, bass, and drums. Uh, there there really aren't any other instruments. Well, on. if you wait any longer, it's going to be like ultimate. Ultimate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, surround sound, or there, yeah. I mean, there'll be some technology that we haven't even thought of yet. I mean, this is a long time project. Yeah. Well, the thing about uh, the surround sound stuff. I was a young man when you started this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the the surround sound will really make it uh, possible to 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 really dial into the details because if you listen to something that is mixed in surround sound. It has less compression. It has less things to be in the way to to mask the the instrument. So you'll be able to feel like you can reach out and touch, you know, the the guitar that's coming out of the speaker there. And so that that kind of stuff is what I, I want to be able to present with the record when it's done. Cool. Do you ever use the ox? That by the way, I gotta give a little oh, some yeah, props yeah. there to James. Uh, he developed this thing called the Ox, and many guitar players, a lot of them that I know, are so concerned with getting their sound that they play so loud by turning their amp up that it's painful for the audience, but they get their sound, you know. So, uh, James, tell us about the Ox. What was the deal with that? Well, I mean, basically, I mean, well, it's going to be a boring talk, but basically, old amps got to be, you got to turn them up. Let's say if you're Van Halen, you got to put the Marshall on like 10, basically, which is not good for anybody. But a lot of us have these amps. In fact, in Duizel's situation, he's got a lot of this stuff, but I think he's you're still in the process of putting the studio together, having yeah. a place to put everything. So, yeah. so I think for a lot of us who the tools will dictate what you need to use during the day, whether at least a lot of touring uh, guys have, you have you, there's things like fractals, or, there's low wattage amps you can have, but there's nothing like having the real thing and taming those beasts are pretty hard to do. So it was just a box to allow you to take all your old non-master volume amps, what they used to call them, and put them wherever they sound good and get into Pro Tools or get into the PA. And get a natural. And get a natural, uh, like, studio, ambient, multiple mic technique sound. But what you haven't yeah. mentioned yet is that it actually provides the speaker cabinets. Right. It's the, Yeah, all the speaker cabinets, the microphones, the, the room itself, the console where you can mix things, put on the plate reverb. So if you took, like, a Marshall head, you plug into this, you could finish the entire signal path from like Van Halen 1. Put the plate reverb over here, put a little EQ over here, mix two microphones and two speakers kind of blended. And so it's, it's a fun playground for that because uh, most people don't have the room or uh, the constraints of living. The world. Yeah, you're in an apartment or you, you live in a place where you've got neighbors are right up to you. You just can't turn those amps up. And I love those old amps. And, 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 and I think even your rig, if you were to look at it over the years, you, you did start with multiple tube amps and a pretty large rig that's now been... You know, you can't, it's hard to tour with a rig that big and with these old amps that need repairing or the volume's an issue. And Well, my dad's, uh, the different sounds that he made yeah. and the different uh, gear that he used all the time, it was, I originally did do it all analog with yeah. the different amps, you know, I had to use three amps and, and it was like two refrigerator size racks right, and right. all this stuff and over 200 cables to yeah. plug in. And that's just, you know, over time when you're traveling, it's very expensive, number one, but it's also... You're just asking for trouble yeah. because cables. Something breaks. Yeah, you gotta figure out which one's Yeah, working. and so uh, you know, I I I went to a modeling style rig because it gave me more flexibility to be able to recreate the sounds from the records, and you know, 
there's going to always be somebody that's going to say, oh, well, you know, the digital stuff doesn't sound as good as, as the real analog stuff. And these days, I mean, if you listen to a recording, you're hard pressed to tell oh, like yeah. what's what. And, you know, it just if it sounds good and you like playing with that sound, then that's what's going to make the show work for you. You know, so I don't I don't get too precious about, uh, you know, the what the signal path actually has to be in terms of actual, you know, vintage hardware and, and yeah. whatnot. You know, I mean, I can appreciate all that stuff just like anybody else. But at the end of the day, I have to make, you know, dozens and dozens of, of complicated sounds uh, and I have to route it different way from preset to preset. And so the modeling stuff with the fractal works best for me. But I do like the thing that Jane made because the, the thing that uh, the box that James made is uh, it is to help you get that vintage sound with the amp that you love and the digital side of it, the speaker side of it is really, really good and sounds amazing. So, you know, again, this is one of those things where you're going to have somebody say, well, you know, it's a vintage amp, but it's not a vintage speaker. Yeah. And, you know, so these are the cork sniffer guys yeah. that are going to be sitting over it's, there, chained to the wall, eating dog food, arguing online. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and I can be that way, too. There are times for that. When we could talk about guitar, we'll talk about oh, this yeah. one. The time to nitpick and about vintage things. But, and and I, and and I, you know what, I've had to let this go in the years of sometimes playing with Dweezil. And it's like, hey, you want to play that? And I'll, I've gotten to a point where I'll play through whatever. Is that sometimes it's a mental block because if you let the gear dictate how you're going to play and sound, you kind of lose. Well, it's the application too. If you're yeah. doing something that's really complicated, you got to go with what you got to go you with. Go, you know? and you, you have fun. Music's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun to play guitar. So, and a lot of which I mean, uh, maybe people forget a lot of bands these days travel in inner monitors. So even if I had a wall of amps, I'd be in. You know, I'd have something in my ear blocking it out because you're listening to a monitor mix. You know, I, um, there's a band that plays around town who has a record that's coming out. It's uh, called The Dirty Knobs. It's Mike oh, Campbell yeah, yeah. and my friend Jason Sine. And those guys are using – both of them have exactly the same setup. They've got an early 50s deluxe amp, Tweed Deluxe, and a Princeton Reverb wired together. And they both get fantastic sounds. Of course, it's not complicated like your music. Right. It's – you know, much more basic and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So, you know, there's all kinds of schools of thought. We don't want to get too uh, complicated, you know, with all our people because I got a lot of knuckleheads that come to my store and mm -hmm. like the cool vintage stuff and want all that. And there's a place for all of Absolutely. Stuff, I know, mean, so. it's if, if you can use that stuff and it works, uh, I mean, it's great in the studio. It can be great live as well. Uh, Obviously, that's what we're all used to when we see and listen to, you know, uh, all our favorite old yeah. records. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, we know that that stuff is is cool and great, but you have to sort of be able to to work uh, as a team player these days. And right. and uh, and you know, the reality is to to get really good live sound, you need it to be really controlled on stage, so that the front of house engineer can do what he needs to do to put things in the right place in the speakers for the audience. So if you're too loud on stage, you're not going to be in the PA. You're just yeah, going to your be, engineer must be losing yeah. his mind during those shows. Well, he's actually uh, yeah. helped you know shape the way that this the sound is on stage, and we play pretty quiet on stage, yeah. really. I mean, like when James plays oh, yeah. with us, uh, uh, and he plays with a little combo amp. I mean, I have like a. Uh, like a 10 watt Marshall, yeah, something you like, know, you just put it on like eight and plug it and, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and you can hear that on stage against the drum kit, yeah. you know, and it's like, so we're not really super loud on stage and it helps with all the dynamics. Well, you can hear what you're doing. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah. James, this, this guitar that you're playing here, this is a pre CBS Strat. Yeah, actually, uh, there's some what? interesting things to it, which kind of relate to that guitar. And maybe another guitar that Dweezil owns was, uh, Back in the day when everyone started seeing people jam humbuckers in the Stratocasters. Yeah. The sort of thing where, uh, and the reason this one's kind of fun is, uh, sorry, I think when we opened it up, we had found that probably in the late 70s, thanks to probably Edward Van Halen, there was a big giant route for a humbucker under the pickguard. Which, again, makes sense because uh, I think once you have a, a, you play a Gibson, you play a Strat, you're like, I want that in there. You know, you start right. taking these ideas, which is exactly what this, you know, this Les Paul over here is, is. If you if you don't mind that, which I think is the forward thinking part of players like like a Frank or a, or a Jimi Hendrix, where it's like you know what, 
it's if you were cork sniffing all the time, you'd, you'd never have any fun. You got to get new sounds, get inspired to play something else different. So I appreciate the guy who at some point hacked this thing to pieces. Well, you like player grade stuff because then you, you've oh, got yeah. the feel of old. You got old wood, you got old pickups, Absolutely. but you can kind of, you know. It's yeah, somebody's. It's a fraction a of the price, oh, yeah, and absolutely. you can kind of experiment a bit. I know you have some straight stuff. I and have some straight stuff, some, but uh, you know, actually, this, this is a fun thing. So yeah, this specific guitar, and then maybe this is a question for you. Is I think you you had had like a you bought a bunch of stuff of some crazy collector repair guy. Yeah. And this was one of the things about, in fact, it came in that day, uh, Blue Saracino in, in blues has been, you've known blues mm-hmm. for ages, right? Yep. Like a long time. So I was going to bring that up. That, yeah. Uh, he's yeah, a buddy yeah. of mine too. Great, so. great player. Has a, has some Another guy st- with yeah. a funny first name. Yeah. Right? You know, <laughs> that's right. What's your first name? Blues. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. No, he's, he's got a bunch of these early CBs and he's bought from you, I think. Actually, yeah. Like a 63 yep. or 64. So. We came in together, started looking through all this stuff, and there was this one poor thing in the back. I mean, I think the frets were green, like the three-way switch was bent and stuck and rusty. Well, I plugged it in, and it just had this really huge, big, fat, woody sound to it for some reason. But under the pick guard, you know, the, the, whoever, this guy must have done all sorts of experiments because, like, like each one of the pickups came from probably a different Stratocaster. Yep. So they were all one was wired out of phase and knocked out, which you can do on purpose, like on a guitar like Dweezels, or some people like to to throw the pickup electrically out of phase. It kind of does this notch thing, where it almost sounds like right. a so like a like a harpsichord almost. You get that really penny little sound out of it. But it was I took it as a fun challenge to put it all back together. So it's got new frets again, nut, and put the wiring back. And so here's some fun something fun for for the super guitar nerds about it is. Uh, one of the pickups was actually the wrong year for this era. Because uh-huh. as you research your guitars, if you took like a 54 Strat and put one of the pickups in a 64 Strat, they'd be reversed. At some point, Fender started uh, winding the pickups the wrong direction. It was pretty geeky pretty stuff. Pretty geeky so, stuff. Yeah. But in 1962, for some reason, the winding machine went the other direction. So if you were to mix those two pickups, they would do that naturally. They'd knock out of face. So that's that guitar had one of these. It's like okay, so this guy had a '64. He was playing with the pickup, stuck it in the middle, and that's like when the first day I played it. It's like the two and four position did not work. It was right. all wrong. So I started scratching my head, thinking, "Well, that's not cool." But whatever. It was a player great guitar. I was having fun playing it. And then you realize, like, well, okay, so if it's backwards, well, that's what we now call reverse wound. And reverse winding is how you actually get hum canceling on a guitar. So I actually just decided just just figured this out last month. Literally just took the the black and put it on the the uh, lead so this guitar naturally now does hum canceling i moved it in the middle rewind it uh wired it backwards and now it is hum canceling in the two and four but it's still original fender pickups well we're back, very weird sorry super techie um, yeah back back in the day too people would take those three-way switches and put notches in there right. so in the middle to get kind of thinner out of phase type out sounds phase and that was kind of a big thing back in the day and it's still and the three-way so we yeah. still have the original three-way you're right and so if you go to you can hear the noise but you go to the two and four it's it's quiet it's still original but another fun thing we should probably bring up too is like when you listen to hendrix tunes and he's doing that kind of stuff on the that classic two and four position thing mm-hmm. I don't have a five-way switch. I'm a, I'm actually very quickly dangling that switch, jamming it in between uh-huh. the three and five. So it's still you can see where it's sitting there, but it is a three-way switch, the original. Which, if you listen to Clapton's like "Lay Down Sally" or any of the Hendrix stuff, yep. they were all three-way switches. I don't lay down Sally. Uh, just want to put them to work. I don't know. So you hear a little music, and then you'll have to take it out because you don't have the rights. That's to true. It. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. That's a little different, but but that's a classic thing, and maybe a fun thing to talk about. Is I know you also get into the Hendrix mode of research, so I think you and Eric are doing another run of that stuff in September, right? Uh, I think it's October. Or October, yeah. So uh, the Experience Hendrix tour, which is a, a fun thing to do, and and I often get to play songs with Eric Johnson, which you know that's another one of the real greats. Yeah, there. yeah. And he's he's on that. Uh, I think I mentioned him. Another on, one of my students. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's he's on that. What the hell was I thinking? Record as well. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, you know, I mean, if we're talking about guitars and guitar tone, who doesn't like the, the sound of Jimi Hendrix, you know? So everybody's always yeah. trying to, you know, find a way to make their guitar and their amps sound like that. And there's, yeah. there's lots of different ways to do it, but obviously, you know, uh, he did it the best. <laughs> well, you know, you got to make your fingers sound like Jim- yeah. Jimi Hendrix first. That's, that's tough. Yeah. 
Hey, we're back at the uh, Norm's Red Guitars podcast. That's kind of like blues from Calcutta or something. There's some Indian thing happening in there. I'm not sure. Not like the uh, American Indian, but like the Indian Indian. Some different scales and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a couple guitars that Dweezil brought in. One being the Strat that Jimi Hendrix gave to your dad. Yes, I did. I brought that in uh, one time. It's uh, it's a, a well-known guitar for, for some people, but uh, if you've never heard about it, uh, uh, it's one of the ones that was burned. It was burned at the Astoria in London, and the, the neck was... Uh, obviously roasted (laughs) and it wasn't uh, usable anymore but the guitar itself um was put back together well it was given to my dad in miami at the miami pop festival because jimmy i was there by the way yeah i grew up in miami that's pretty sweet and by the way when jimmy came in at the miami pop festival uh, a lot of people maybe don't know this but what happened was they didn't announce who the final act was, and it was uh, big hype, and they were saying surprise final act, and two helicopters come and land. It was at a, you know, out at a racetrack out there, you know, mm-hmm. and these two helicopters come in and land. People going, it's the Beatles, it's the Beatles. Who knows, you know, who it was? And then all of a sudden, Jimmy comes out of one, and you know, back in the day, everybody had to tune up before they played, yeah. but he was tuned. And uh, bass player and drummer Mitchell and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, came out of the other helicopter. They just uh, walked in, plugged in the amps, and just went right into it and blew everybody's mind. And Jimmy at the time was really hungry and playing at his best and just killed everybody. It was that, unbelievable. That uh, uh, video of, of them doing Foxy Lady from that is, is probably one of the best versions ever absolutely. Of, of that song. But the weirdest part, though, is if you see the audience, it's like some uh, some white teenagers with the sweaters tied around their neck, and they're giving it a golf clap afterwards. And it was like, <laughs> what? Come on. You know? Well, you know, that was kind of a transition in time yeah. right there. Yeah. There was uh, the guys that were the jocks that yeah. were kind of into it. Yeah. They just wanted to bring their girlfriends to kind yeah. of show them that they actually like music. Yeah. Know, make some points with them, you know. But and there it, was the long hairs. Yeah. It's pretty wild, though, because that is an amazing performance. I mean, you're right. He, he just oh. killed it when he went out there. But then you see the audience reaction, which was like uh, a little limp-wristed there. Oh, you know? it's, it's, I think it's as bad as like the Stevie Ray thing when he tells he goes to like the Montreux Jazz Festival yeah. and plays and they're like, boo! Well, it's like uh, yeah. Dylan. You couldn't appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it was so radically yeah. different yeah. Yeah. from anything else that was going on that people didn't know. You know, a lot of times, you know, when people don't know about music, they kind of look at each other and go, that was good, wasn't it? You yeah. know, and they kind of yeah. clap politely yeah. because they don't know they if don't it's know good what it or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Because they just want to, you know, they don't want to look lame that they don't. They don't you want know, to be the leader. They have to be able to follow somebody. If somebody else right. is going to clap, I'll yeah. happily clap that's along. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah. if it's good, that's mm-hmm. like in a lot of jazz clubs. You know, the guys yeah. look at each other and go, that was really good, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, and so. Uh, I really you know, dig what you were trying <laughs> to do up there. It was good. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure. You know, <laughs> yeah. whatever you were trying to do, it yeah. was good that you were trying to yeah. do. Yeah. 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 So but, tell us about that guitar. So that guitar, uh, it was given to my dad at that, uh, at that show, and it sat around at our house, uh, nailed to the wall in the basement for a few years. But then eventually my dad took the body of it, which was all burnt. And he uh, had Rex Bogue, who was a luthier in the seventies who I built Rex. a bunch of stuff for, for different people. And he put it back together and it had a lot of crazy things in it. At first it, it had a, um, a hot dot pickup, which was before piezo pickups. So it was, mm-hmm. it was put into the guitar. So, uh, my dad was trying to get, um, a more immediate string reaction, something that felt like the guitar was resonating. Uh, and so that was, uh, there was a preamp for that, and uh, but it had the original burnt pickup covers, not the pickups, because those were uh-huh. destroyed. And he put it together, and he was on the cover of Guitar Player in 1977 with that guitar. And, I remember that. And then it changed a few times with different necks and different uh, pick guards with different electronics over the years. And at one point it disappeared and I found it at our house under a staircase, not in a oh, case, all taken it. apart. Yeah. Piece I put of it, a historic yeah, memorabilia, you know. Yeah, at that point I put it back together uh, as more of a uh, stock uh, 60s Strat for my dad. And he was ill at the time, so he couldn't, 
he couldn't play it anymore. He just was like, I, you know, I just I can't even play anymore. So he said, do you want it? I said, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. So and then I said about re uh, I made it. So it looked like it was on the 1977 guitar player cover. And that's when I brought it in to you. Right. Uh, so we showed it right when I got it um, finished, uh, you know, being refurbished like that. So it's a cool guitar. Absolutely. And you were given another gift that was pretty cool from. Oh, well, I got a guitar from Edward Van Halen that was, um, uh, it was another one of these like sitting in the corner situations. You know, I had seen uh, as a kid, Life magazine, there was a picture of Ed backstage and there was a guitar that uh, was on a guitar stand and it was the only guitar he had that had any green. The color green was just, it wasn't on any of his guitars up until that point. So this was like 1982, 83, something like that. And uh, anyway, later on, uh, when I was at his studio years later, I said, oh, hey, that's the guitar from from Life magazine. And it was what he called the Rasta guitar. And it, it had the green and the red and the black and the yellow. But uh, the guitar neck was off of the guitar and uh, and in the the, the neck joint uh there, it, it appeared that somebody had vomited in the neck joint at, <laughs> at some point. So he's like, "Oh yeah, uh, yeah you oh, got to play the right notes. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. problem." Yeah. So, but he, he said, oh, yeah, uh, "I don't really play that guitar. You want that guitar?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> so, uh, but it turns out that that guitar, if you look through the paint, it has the circles and the man lying down. It's the it's the one yeah. that he used in the video from the Oakland concerts where they're playing Unchained cool. and hear about it later and all that stuff. And, um, but the guitar is really heavy. I mean, it feels yeah. like it weighs like, Oh, it's a thousand least, pounds. It's yeah. Crazy. What does yeah. vomit weigh when it's yeah. been sitting there yeah. for yeah. 20 years? Uh, so you can't really weigh vomit or dust. Well, it or depends what, you know, the yeah. consistency, consistency of the vomit is. I yeah. mean, the guy might've had like yeah. pork chops or something. Yeah. And then, but it's real. Threw it back up. Vomit, though, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a, uh, you know, when you really want to go to the full DNA level yeah. of this guitar, it has real DNA history, real. you know, so. Real. But yeah, right, that's I a fun guitar. If you look at the history of it, that band was probably at, at its best in those years. I think it was only three songs that came from this. Uh, it was Oakland Four, Coliseum? yeah. Three or four songs. Yeah. The band was amazing sounding. And you see them where, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Unchained actually has a drop of D on top of being a half step down. Which I was yeah. guessing probably why that guitar was set up for the extra drop D on top of the half step down to do Unchained, to do it right. Yeah. And you see, yeah, it's got the circles. And I, we've looked at the guitar before. And, you've, yeah, if you put it in the right light, you just you just see those kind of crops. Yeah, and you can see it on paint. the back yeah. where it says, bye, see right. you later. See you later, yeah. Yeah, the little message when he would flip the guitar up and uh, show that message to the audience. So that you could see that on the back of there. Uh, but yeah, that guitar is, it's got a great, uh, history to it. It's, uh, you know, it's a unique instrument, uh, because you know it from those, those performances and, and stuff. But I mean, uh, and those are such classic riffs oh, and, and that version of Unchained is it's, so cool because he has that one part where he goes to the verse early and yeah. changes the arrangement there. And it's, it's just really cool. Yeah. It's, it's like, the, and, and there's another guy who was not afraid with, cause he think about, well, why did he paint it? Then you think of his main guitar started as what? White and black yeah. with a pick guard and then loses the pick guard. Then it starts getting red in it. Yeah. So you see in his mind, I think much like the guitar you're holding that was based on your dad's stuff. These guys were always pushing forward. They didn't cork sniff too much. It's like, no, I'm looking for new sounds, whatever gets me there. And you burn the bridge behind you. Basically. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing too is that um, I think really when you, when you start to get to that place where you're in the process of being creative and making yeah. music, you want to be able to sort of let whatever's happening, you want to respond to to what's going on around you. And so if you're open to to that and the and the sounds that are happening, you're going to want to take it to another place. Yeah. You know, if you stay too much in this one area, uh, you know, you may never discover what else you can do. And, you know, but there are some artists that stay in one area and everybody loves them for, for being... Yeah. Right there. Yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah. you know, Angus Young, I mean, ACDC, uh, like, uh, how many ballads do they have? Exactly zero. Zero. You know? <laughs> what guitar? An SG yeah. and a Marshall. It yeah. never changed. Yeah, Literally. it's like he played yeah, yeah. Slide on something recently, and people were like, no, dude. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Those folks aren't, you know, mm -hmm. too uh, open to, um, yeah. you know, Change. new things. Yeah. So. 
Mm-hmm. But well, I want to ask you one question though, because that on sure. that same topic, how many guitars have you sold that left in one condition and a week later came back completely different? And I think one maybe good example is the one you sold to Robbie Robertson. Oh yeah, it was like a vintage Strat that then got bronzed and dipped and cut to pieces. Or well, something. actually, uh, it was a 1954 Strat, and the yeah. guitar player in my band, Dan Walsh, we had a band named after his some white Samoyed dog. We were called the Charlie Dog Band, and uh, you know, we were a product of a lot of uh, hallucinogenics and yeah. stuff like yeah. that. But anyhow. Uh, he had asked me to sell his guitar, and I ended up selling it to Robbie Robertson. It was originally transparent red, and Robbie dipped it in some gold. I don't know. It was like a gold paint. And his thing was he would take two Gibson Melody Maker pickups, wire them together, and made a humbucker out of these two pickups. And that was kind of the secret to his sound. And that's like the last waltz, basically. The last waltz, scene, yeah. yeah. So if you look at the last waltz, we supplied all the instruments of that. And uh, that was, uh, he had a lot of tweed amps and he had all kinds of stuff. There were a lot of great guitars in that movie. Some real one of a kinds. It was the number one Gibson citation that uh, was used. Um, I think that was a Staple Singers thing. And there was um, uh, another Martin Cowood Triple O 45K, the only one ever made. There was a lot of really cool stuff. And Robbie at the time knew that uh, the film company was going to pay for instruments in there so he said let's go into your warehouse and pick out some stuff and he knew exactly what he was doing and bought a lot of really cool guitars for me that were used in the last waltz and i always love that movie i think it's the greatest movie documentary on music at that time really captured all the top artists of the day and you know it was really it's a fantastic movie if you haven't seen it you should see it yeah, it's just, it's interesting that for some reason I'm okay with that. It's a 54 Strat that got transformed. Well, it was already was going finished, oh, and sure. and he could justify it. And it was just like Ted Green to you know where Ted would modify guitars and he would use them, and uh, you know how could you tell Ted Green? Oh yeah, is it going do for it? a sound? In how the do head? you tell Frank yeah. Zappa? Mm-hmm. Don't do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, I they're mean, going somewhere like, you're not you haven't yeah. gone yet. They're trying yeah. new things. Right. You got to appreciate the artistry to to push forward and go somewhere. No one else has gone yet, or at least try. Have you ever seen yeah. a 59 Les Paul come in with a Kaler on it? <sighs> no, that I haven't. That, that I kind of, I think that would draw the line there. But I did see one time when I was in Miami before I left. I'll never forget this. I was in a guitar repair shop, and this was in the late 60s. And a guy had a Sunburst Les Paul, and he was uh, a 59, and he put it uh, behind his car, and he was about to load it in his trunk. Forgot about it, got in his car, backed up, and oh. ran over it. And uh, so this repairman was putting the neck back together, which was in a lot of pieces. Uh, so that was about as modded yeah. I've ever seen yeah. a, a Les Paul of that era. And nice. uh, you know, I'm sure he was happy about that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was not one of his better days, but uh, yeah. especially now, knowing how much they go for, yeah, wasn't exactly his brightest move. But uh, I just want to say I am so lucky to have guys like this to be able to do this, come in and do our podcasts. And you're going to see this, the film of this later on the All Guitar Network, and the podcast will be released first. We love you guys for listening to this stuff. We get a little geeky, but it's three buddies sitting around talking guitar stuff. And uh, I, I just can't thank you folks enough. We've had such a great reaction to our social media, our videos and all that. You know, Dweezil, when you came in and you did your videos with the store with the uh, with both the uh, Stratocaster yeah. and the uh, Van Halen guitar, um, you know, people love that stuff. So I can't thank you guys enough. We are humbled by it. And I do appreciate you guys, uh, you know, actually giving us the time of day and uh James Santiago, one of the great guitar players. Um, if you haven't heard James play, I mean, we're talking about all this other technical stuff, but James can play his butt off. And the reason that you were hired, um, you know, is because you could kind of emulate a lot of different things. I mean, you have your own style and everything, but you can play in anything. That's why I asked you to play Lay Down Sally before. I just wanted four. to mess you up. Yeah. I got about four good seconds of me of certain players before your hands <laughs> fall apart. Like, you can't do Stevie Ray unless you dedicate your life to that. But yeah. I can get three seconds in before I yeah. break, go, go down. Before it's like, uh, like Stevie Ray, Ray Santiago. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's all over. Yeah, it's all over. But I can... I got a few seconds of me. I'll let that joke drop right there. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you guys again for listening to this stuff and watching the thing on All Guitar Network. All Guitar Network's free, so you can sign up for that. This podcast is the greatest. The great Dweezil Zappa. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. I mean, you're an old friend, and I can't. 
thank you enough. The great James Santiago, can you take us out with a little bit of music and just uh, send us back into the ozone? We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Let's pick a key. Should we try well, something different? I don't know, man. You know, like uh, I always look at everything in A Dorian, even if it's not. All right. <laughs> Gonna make it bossa nova. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. This would be weird, ready? That's jazz, folks. It's like almost like that just reminded me of a heart song for something. And I, I don't know which one. Uh, if I play it, we're going to get trouble. I think it was four of them at one time. <laughs> oh, oh, there, oh, there you, you go. go. Yeah, just right, we'll on that note. Thank you guys nice. for listening. Norm Jar Guitars Podcast. The Weasel Zappa, James Santiago. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was really cool, man. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much. The problem is I had to get more stories out of you and the Weasel. There's just too many. Thank you guys for listening. You can get us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a good rating. We could use it. Thank you very much.